Hi, everybody. Grab a Bible, open it up to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9. As you're turning there, I want to make you aware of a resource that we just got in for you. You know, one of the things that we talk about all the time is the opportunity that you have to invite people to church, to take a minute and share the gospel with them, share your faith uh, with them. And around specific times of the year, like Christmas, like Easter, uh, well over 80% of people that you invite to church will say yes. People are genuinely open to coming to church and hearing about who this Jesus is. So we ordered this resource called The Essential Jesus. It's out in the bookstore. It's $2. So not going to break the bank for you. This is an evangelistic tool for you to put in someone else's hands. Uh, so it is the entirety of the Gospel of Luke in book form uh, for them to read. On, on the front end, it gives a little bit of Bible overview of all that's happened historically until Jesus shows up. It, it tells through the Gospel of Luke the life of Jesus. And at the end, it makes a gospel appeal to them to turn to Christ and place their trust in him. So this is an easy tool for you to hand to someone, use it to introduce them to Jesus, use it to invite them uh, to church over the next couple of weeks as we continue to celebrate the Christmas season together. So let's go to Isaiah 9 here in just a second. You know, there is, there is something inherent within us all that naturally looks for leadership. We desire someone to come into our circumstances and help us to know where to go and help us to know what to do. A key example happened on 9-11. Then mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani, wrote a book called Leadership. The book is worth the price of the book for the first chapter because the first chapter chronicles his entire day on 9-11. And whether you agree or not with Giuliani's political stances or his personal choices that have been less than wise, the only logical conclusion you can come to is that as a leader, he saved New York City that day. The key decisions that he made on very short notice with very limited information made all of the difference. Countless lives were saved and untold destruction was limited because of him. In fact, leadership is often defined not in the good times, but during the bad times, as someone steps into a mess and helps to show the way forward. That's why Max Dupree famously said, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. A leader steps into the chaos and helps people understand what's really happening, and then he charts a path out of the chaos and into a better place. Isaiah 9 is one of those times of chaos and despair. It's during a time of national unfaithfulness to God, Israel is experiencing turmoil because unfaithfulness to God always leads to turmoil. And on top of that, in, in chapter 8, God had condemned the Israelites and announced to them that he's sending in the Assyrian armies, this pagan nation, and they're going to conquer Israel. But in the midst of all of that turmoil, we find a breath of fresh air as God declares relief because someone is going to step in and provide direction. But they're not looking for a king. They're not looking for a president. They're not looking for a pope. They're looking for a baby. Chapter 9, verse 1. 
But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall make great their gladness. They'll be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall shatter the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their taskmaster as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior and the rumbling of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. You know, we're spending a few weeks here in December leading up to Christmas looking at these titles that have been given to Jesus, this promised baby to be born. Last week, we saw that Jesus is the wonderful counselor, a wonder of a counselor and what that would mean. Today, we see that this baby to be born will be mighty God. He's not just someone who's going to point the way. He's, he's not a military ruler. He's not a king in any earthly sense. This baby to be born is going to be God himself. Jesus was quite clear about his identity. In John chapter 8, Jesus definitively declares that he is, in fact, mighty God. Jesus is in a heated debate with the religious leaders of the day. It's kind of like a church version of the OK Corral. We pick up the argument in John 8 as it's coming to a close. John 8, starting in verse 52. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death ever. Surely you were not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. And you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You know, there are those who say, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. And, and, and this claim of divinity for Jesus that was fabricated later historically by his early followers after he died, they really wanted their time with Jesus to be meaningful. So they made up this, this lie, this fantasy about Jesus, that he was God in the flesh. Jesus never claimed that. And we're imposing this on him. But they all just lied because... They were so brokenhearted that he had died. Well, those people haven't read John chapter 8 because Jesus absolutely declares he is mighty God and it's so clear to his audience they're ready to kill him on the spot 
for doing so. This instant is simply one of seven different distinct times in the Gospel of John that Jesus declares that he is indeed God in the flesh. Jesus is referencing back to Exodus chapter 3, that famous encounter between God and Moses at the burning bush. God had heard the cry of the Israelites. They'd been in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years, and he announces to them he's going to deliver them, and he's going to use Moses to do it. Well, Moses backpedals at the thought of having to face off with Pharaoh, who is the most powerful man on the planet, who believes he's a god. So Moses asks God, what if they ask who sent me? I mean, the Egyptians believe in a whole lot of gods, so I'm going to go and say God sent me, and they're going to say, well, which one? What's his name? What should I say? And God declares, you tell them I am sent you. That is God's divine name. I am Yahweh. The name that set God apart from the empty polytheism of the day of worshiping dozens or hundreds, and and later on, once you get into other false religions, millions of false gods, he is, I am, the eternal, self-existent one. He is the one real, true God. So in John 8, this is quite a declaration by Jesus. Before Abraham was born, I am He's declaring himself to be the one true God. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. The rest of the New Testament affirms that truth. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, speaking of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1, 3, who's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. I think the key in all of this is not just that the New Testament affirms this truth and and says these things about Jesus. Jesus himself backs it up. He doesn't just say, I'm God in the flesh. I'm Emmanuel, God with us. He proves it by his life. He proves the power of mighty God. Well, let's walk through that for a little bit together. Jesus shows he's mighty God by showing he has power over a number of things, power only God can have. Number one, he shows he has power over disease. There's this great little account uh, in the life of Jesus in Mark chapter two, where four friends have a friend who's been paralyzed and they want to get him to Jesus. They hear that Jesus can heal people. So they go to him wherever he's at and they, they pick up his mat. A you know, paralyzed man lived on a mat that was three feet wide by six feet long. That was the real estate they took up on planet earth. And they pick that up by the four corners and they carry him. We don't know how far to wherever Jesus is. He's in a house and he's teaching. Well, they get there and the house is filled with people listening to Jesus teach And there's a crowd that's gathered outside the house, hoping to get a glimpse, hoping to hear maybe a little bit through the walls, and they can't even get close to the house because the crowd is so large. So they decide to be creative and destructive. 
They go up onto the roof. The roofs were flattened that day and there's an outside staircase to go up. They go up on top of that roof and they begin to pound on the roof until they crack some holes in it. And they dig out the hole to be bigger and bigger, uh, about three feet wide by six feet long. They get some ropes and they lower their friend down through the roof into the room where Jesus is sitting to teach. Now, I've had some significant interruptions while I've been preaching before. You all on your cell phones, it's a thing. Crying babies, people who run out. I had a lady once who so hated what I said about Jesus, she walked out and threw a Bible at the tech booth and stormed out of the room. I think that might be the worst. But I've never had someone break through the roof and lower someone down in front of me. That's what's happening with Jesus and this huge crowd in the room. They lower him down and Jesus says to him, as this man is hovering in midair in front of him. I think it's one of the funniest stories in the gospel accounts. And Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Cool. (laughs) Not really why I'm here. Have you seen the mat? I don't walk. Here's where the story picks up. Mark chapter two, verse six. But some of the scribes, the religious leaders were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they're reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your mat, and go to your home. And he got up and immediately picked up the mat and went out before everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And one of the constants of Jesus' ministry was healing that he brings to the afflicted. The only one who has power to heal the body is the one who created the body. Number two, Jesus shows he has power over sin. Again, the idea is reinforced in the same account in Mark 2. Jesus declares, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders erupt. So would you. So would I. Who does this man think he is? No one can forgive sins but God alone. And they are absolutely correct. Who does he think he is? I'll tell you who he is. He is mighty God. Notice how Jesus said it then. Mark 2, back to verse 10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your mat, and go to your home so that they would recognize his power over sin, thus declaring him to be mighty God. He heals the man. Number three, he shows he has power over nature. At one point in his ministry, Jesus and his disciples are in a boat and a storm blows up very quickly and water starts roaring over the sides of the boat and the disciples begin to think, we're not gonna make it. We're gonna sink right here in the middle of the Sea of Galilee What do we do? Jesus, meanwhile, is in the back of the boat, asleep. They wake him up, save us. What are we going to do? Mark 4, verse 39. And he woke up and rebuked the wind 
and said to the sea, silence, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you so cowardly? Do you still have no faith? And they became very afraid and were saying to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The only one who has power over, the na- over nature is the one who made nature. Colossians 1 verse 15, Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Number four, Jesus shows he has power over life. John chapter 11, Jesus finds out that his dear friend Lazarus has died. And Jesus arrives on the scene four days after his death, a little too late to do anything, but not for the one who has power over life. John 11, verse 43, and when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What a story. To call out to a grave, get up and come out. And he does. Number five, he has power over death. In Acts chapter two, the apostle Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and delivers that first gospel sermon And in that sermon, Peter declares part of Jesus' identity. Acts 2, verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Death has power over all of us, except for one. Jesus, as mighty God, shows power over death. Only the creator and sustainer of life defeats death. So Jesus clearly claims he's mighty God. He backs up his claim. But here's the question that we have to answer. Well, so what? Why bother talking about this? Why does this even matter? Do we believe that this is true simply so that we're not heretics who believe false things? Because the stats that come out of research about what Christians believe in America about theology, it's a sad state. And this issue right here is one of the saddest. Almost seven out of 10 Christians say Jesus was a great teacher, but he's not God. 70% of current Christians are heretics in their view of Jesus. That's what that means. That's pretty bad, don't you think? Like, that's a lot. 43% of current Christians in America say Jesus was the first and greatest created being. He's kind of like an angel, but a little bit better. False 
views, if you hold to those views, you disagree with Jesus himself. But this truth we don't hold just because the Bible says it and we don't want to be heretics. We want to believe true things. All that's right and good. But this truth makes a world of difference. This truth, number one, brings comfort. I said at the beginning, we inherently want someone to step in and lead. And when that happens, we find comfort. Someone's got this. You know, there's chaos all around. Someone's in control of this. Someone's going to take care of this. That's comfort. When Jesus shows up, comfort arrives with him because he is mighty God. He alone has the power to do something about the chaos. Number two, this truth provides direction. So if Jesus being wonderful counselor is him coming alongside of us, like we talked about last week and how wonderful that is. Him being mighty God is him pointing the right direction to go. And since he's mighty God, here's what that means. Jesus does not give advice. Jesus issues commands because his words are authoritative. Jesus said in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is God as a man. This is divinity in the flesh. So when he comes alongside and he points the direction to go, we go that direction. Why would we do anything else? When the Bible declares something is right or wrong, we follow its lead as the very word of God. Whether that's in our relationships, whether that's our sexuality, our jobs, our faith, Jesus as mighty God has all authority. And number three, this truth inspires worship. I think Christmas is perhaps the hardest time for us to see Jesus as mighty God. Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. First of all, yeah, right. I've been around babies. They all cry. He's not exempt. In Christmas, we see Jesus, meek and mild, a harmless little baby. We struggle to see mighty God in a manger. But know that those at the first Christmas did not have that problem. The Christmas story is a story of worship. If you read through the Christmas narrative in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, and I strongly encourage you to do that before Christmas, what you will find is that all of the characters in the Christmas story end up in the same place on their face in adoration of Jesus. Whether it's the angels, whether it's the shepherds, whether it's the wise men, they all bow in worship of mighty God lying in a manger. God in the humblest, God in the unlikeliest of places. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the truth of Christmas and the chance to spend some time as your people walking through this account yet again that's so incredibly vital for us. To see these truths of who Jesus is and what that means for us. Thank you that Jesus was not just an emissary, 
not just a representative of heaven, not just a messenger of God, but God himself. And thank you that as God, he came and did all that he did to prove his true identity. And we choose to believe it. That this is actually the case. And believing the truth about Jesus changes everything about us. Changes everything about our lives. Changes everything about our relationships. Changes everything about our eternity. We believe the truth about Jesus. The truth that You've declared in scripture the truth that Jesus himself declared. We believe it. And in our faith in Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, we understand the magnitude of what it is that he did. He came, lived sinlessly. How could he not? He's God in the flesh. And goes to the cross and accepts the penalty for our sins against him so that we would never have to experience that. Who takes death so that we could experience eternal life. That's what we celebrate. That's why we gather. As we do every week, we pause to remind ourselves that that's the centerpiece of everything we believe. That's the centerpiece of everything we do. So we take a piece of bread and a cup of juice and with them we remind ourselves of the sacrifice of Jesus for sinners like us. It's in his name that we pray, amen.